Welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it up. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. Very kind, very kind. Highly exaggerated, but very, very kind. It's great to see everybody here. Uh, You know, I get a chance every weekend to be in a different spot in the country, and it is true that the early service folks are the most spiritual people in the church. You put the Lord first. Those second service people, they're still in bed. You know that. I know that. And uh, But anyway, thanks for being so spiritual, getting here at 9 o'clock in the morning. And uh, what a joy. Love pastors, uh, Sonny and Sean Hennessy, great friends. A lot of great connections. Um, uh, I, I was going to joke and say, I'm not really a football fan. My wife <laughs> threw up on the front row. She said, she said, don't lie to the people. Now I'm a big football fan. So here's our connection. So my son played football at Cal. Uh, he was a starting tight end for the Cal Bears out in the Pac-12, the alma mater where Aaron Rodgers went to college. And he played a couple years after Aaron was there and was headed to the NFL and were playing the Ohio State Buckeyes. And he got his knee whacked. Uh, by a guy named Christian Bryant down at the Horseshoe and uh, in the fourth quarter of a big game back in 2013 and it ended his football career. There was a high school kid in Sacramento that looked up to my son who was in college and his dad was a pastor and a great friend and uh, I go, man, your kid has potential. I can tell it. You know, I watched this whole thing, how it works. So we became great friends and he kind of looked up to my son Spencer and I tried to get Cal to recruit this kid. They brought him on a visit, but they just thought he just didn't fit their scheme. I said, you guys are crazy. This kid's going to be a great football player. So um, he gets an offer uh, to go to the University of Cincinnati, has a massive high, uh, college career, and a couple years ago was your third round draft pick, Josiah DeGuara. And so he is, his, his dad is an assembly God pastor that took my church in Sacramento when I went to North Central. So. I've become a Packers fan, uh, big time. I watch every game just to make certain uh, that Josiah is getting his plays. He got a lot of plays last week. He's a great blocker and a great kid. He had to come back from a big knee surgery, but that's my connection. Uh, Do you wonder who my team is, though? I don't think I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Where did I grow up? No, Northern California. that little red and gold team that played here last January. I'm sorry, I apologize for that. I was one of only 549er fans at Lambeau last year in January. I was on about the 10 yard line and uh, I know numerous players on the team and grew up with Eric Armstead. Our kids all grew up together in Sacramento. So, But I'm I'm torn because I'm a Packer fan 99% of the time unless they play each other. And this year's not looking too good, like we're gonna play each other in in January again, but hey, who knows? I think you're gonna win. The other weird thing is today you're playing the Lions and Jared Goff, my son coached at Cal for five years and Jared Goff was one of the players. So it's all these weird collisions, but thanks be to Jesus for the foot of the cross, hallelujah. We all come here as believers, not fans, and God is good. 
What a great church. What a great atmosphere in this place. Um, my beautiful bride is on the front row here, and uh, she is a great speaker across this nation herself, and uh, they call her Mrs. H at the university. So Mrs. H, would you stand up real quick? Um, she's right there. I want to show you my favorite picture of my bride. If you could put that picture up there, we're going to be in uh, Mark going to be the gospel of Mark shortly, but I love that picture of Karen, that circa 19, because we probably 65 or 66, we're both born in 62, which means we both just turned 60, and we have been married 40 years and have four great kids and 11 grandkids, and so we've got some big Bible numbers going on in our life. But that's my favorite picture of Karen of all time. I love the little bent wrist, the little feminine Look, the little haircut, the page boy haircut from the 60s, the little matching purse and dress. It's probably Easter Sunday that they took this picture, but it's not her outfit or haircut. It's the gleam in her eye. Very few things in life can give a woman that gleam. That woman only gets a gleam like that maybe once in her life when she sees it. And I think that God, even at this stage, was showing Karen her future and was giving Karen a glimpse, and that's why the gleam in her. I think this is what the Lord was showing Karen about her future. Next slide, if you will. So, <laughs> now listen, we're building a relationship here. This is not, you don't even know that's me. How do you even know that that's me? I got my little twisty velvet shorts on. That's Easter, Easter Sunday, 1965 or six at the Fresno airport. Uh, I have my little patent other shoes. My brother to my left has his prison outfit on there. That's his stripes. Um, but it might, it's the hair. I love my hair. You see, my dad, uh, my dad gave us haircuts. My dad worked in the timber lumber industry and had a big chainsaw. And that was his pride and joy. We weren't allowed to touch. The, it was like his Harley, man. Don't touch the chainsaw. And I said later on, I said, Dad, did you combine the haircuts with the chainsaw? Because that haircut right there, but I do tell people, you put a pair of skinny jeans on that, that's a modern worship leader in America in any church. That haircut was way ahead of its time, way ahead of its time. So those two little kids collided, and here's a quick little picture from August uh, right there. There's our 11 uh, wonderful kids, man. I could tell you stories about all of them right there. The little fella that Karen's off her right shoulder, the little tall kid, that's Elias. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's quite a, a little dude, man. He calls Karen Gaga. How cute is that? Gaga. Till he turned to me and called me Kaka. <laughs> I said, buddy, I took Spanish in seventh grade. We are not calling grandpa Kaka. Do you understand this? So we hired a speech therapist quickly that, and they got that out of his mouth. That's what grandpa and grandparents spend their money on. Um, but anyway, we love, our, we love our littles very, very much, very, very much. Get your Bibles ready. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we're going to share a teaching called Enough Already. And I'll contextualize this. Um, again, I want to say thank you. Uh, Life Church has been so generous and helpful with scholarships and helping students um, uh, go to school and water this earth out of uh, Minneapolis. And it's a great university, North Central University. It's been there for 93 years. All the online stuff, all the, we got it all. It's a great school. Please check it out. Keep it on your list. 
And it's an NCAA Division III school, and we just are very grateful for all that's happened in our great city. Um, as God has put us in the heart of the city, we're in the inner city, we're right next to U.S. Bank Stadium. Uh, occasionally, whenever on occasion the Vikings score, you can hear it um, uh, right there on campus. Um, so anyway, it's a great school. So North Central, keep us in your hearts and prayers. Thank you for your generosity. I'm going to share a teaching in just a moment called Enough Already, but I do want to make you aware uh, I'm not here to, to push books, uh, but there's a resource that I brought. Actually, I don't have any of these available out there. One of them, the other one I have that I hope everybody will take advantage of today. A couple years ago, I had the privilege of uh, putting together and compiling this book called The Language of Influence. And it's a very simple book. You can read the book in 20 minutes. Uh, it's filled with hundreds of discussion starters on leadership. Why is that important? Uh, because first of all, uh, all of us are situated in, in this tremendous tension where our nation in the last three years has gone from a nation of service to a nation of surveillance and where people's hard hearts have be, or cold hearts have become hard hearts uh, toward one another. We're living in times like we have never seen and that history has never been able to describe. And yet we're situated in there. How many of you work in a tough place, by the way? You go to work every day in a tough spot. How many of you actually work for the Antichrist? The Antichrist is your boss. Um, some of you, now a couple staff people, I'm not going to tell Pastor Sean what I just saw in this room, but no, some of us are, in, we're, we're the only Christian in the room and we're trying to be on a team, lead a team, lead an organization. The Lord has allowed this simple little book to go all over the world. Uh, last year, the Green Bay Packers used it. The Yankees used it. Florida State football team uses it. Uh, Warren Buffett's energy uh, uh, VP, uh, Adam Wright, who's now with PG&E, he got a thousand of these uh, once he saw it and he got it as an onboarding tool at his company. He's using it uh, for all of his management leaders. Um, it's simply a book that has hundreds of ways to think about leadership. And I'm gonna give you a taste of it in just a second as we look at Mark chapter six and it will frame our, our, our teaching. So um, I just wanna encourage you uh, to get it to, for your own personal leadership. But if you lead a company, this is a magnificent gift uh, to give to your employees this holiday season. Secular companies as well as churches are using this. I wrote it in such a way that you can hand it to the Antichrist. And I'm not being, I'm not joking here. You can hand this to somebody who hates God, doesn't know God. And I promise you, it will become a conduit of conversation that will bring life. If you're on a team, lead a team, serve a team, your boss, uh, give it to city council members. This made it to the president's desk uh, and it's made it to the speaker of the house on both sides, the minority, the majority. It's made it all over state legislatures. This leadership tool has just been uh, a remarkable, uh, unexpected way of reaching into a lot of places and spaces. So we talk about leadership. We're talking about living a 10X life. Daniel in Daniel chapter one, it talks about Daniel who was being re-educated as a 15 year old. And he resisted the cultural reorganization or re-education of his life. And he lived in narrow, a narrow space in Daniel chapter 1. Three times the word education is used. And it said, he said, examine my life after I do this and tell me what you see. And they examined him and found him to be ten times better than his contemporaries. Not ten times better than you in an elitist sense. But the competencies in Daniel's life were measurably 10 times better than Silicon Valley, Wall Street, or Hollywood could produce. And then he lived that 10X life until he was 85. He shows up again in Daniel chapter five 
as an 85-year-old, no one can read the writing on the wall at this banquet for the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And they said, hey, there's an 85-year-old down in the dungeon. Let's pull him out. And he had a keen mind. He could, in, he could interpret dreams. He could, he could solve the riddle and he could solve difficult problems. If you can see the future and if you can untangle the knot and if you can solve difficult problems, you will be relevant for the rest of your life. Daniel's 85 and those aren't like Bible dog years. That was 85, okay, like a legit 85. And he was the most relevant man in the kingdom because he could read the writing on the wall. So we have to be leaders in the marketplace that can read the writing on the wall. I wanna give you just a, a little taste of how to take your kingdom leadership, your 10X leadership, wherever you are situated in this world. I want you to think about a couple things here. Put that next slide, if you will, up on the screen. Whatever you can't talk about owns you. If you can't talk about it, trust me, friends, it owns you. We have to have ways of discussion that are civil and that are in a space that's non-polarizing in the opening five seconds. We also have to talk about our life. I'm not talking about broadcasting our life across social media, but I am talking about having a strategic friend in your life in which you can spill your guts. All the unfinished business, all the sudden craziness, all the temptations in your life, having at least one other person on this planet that you can talk with in a legitimate way that is powerful and humble and safe and prayerful. None of us in this room can make it. Nobody in this room can become whole without talking. You cannot bottle it on the inside. This is a powerful principle for teams and a powerful principle in leadership. Here's another one that I want to give you real fast. Next slide. You have to keep growing, risking, and expanding as a leader because at some point you run out of prior experiences. Nobody wants to live off the fumes of what they once were. We can't keep telling stories that become tired and exhausted. I'm not talking about a testimony that is timeless. I'm just talking about the achievements that inspire our own lives and inspire those around us. You have to keep risking, growing, and expanding in your leadership. I went back and got a master's degree when I was 48. I was a 1.85 kid my freshman year of college. Nobody would have said, hey, there's a college president at 18. Way to go, 1.85, great job. I cheated through high school, lied every day, got saved that summer, and stopped lying and cheating and found out I was a 1.85 student as a, as a holy guy. Um, because even if you're born for something, you still have to learn how to do it. But you have to keep risking, expanding and growing because you're gonna run out of prior achievement. It's a great conversation to have on leadership. Here's the third one for you real fast. Do you know that nobody's success is robbing your potential? This is a plague amongst young leaders. They're terrified to resource, help, or celebrate somebody until their day arrives because they haven't got theirs. The kingdom of God is not based on scarcity, it's based on abundance. But here's how this works in the leadership domain. We have to be that person in every setting that is like that whoosh of wind and help and resource and celebration, the first to speak up and speak something good, the first to recognize accomplishment, achievement in others, even while we feel barren and unfruitful. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. Imagine if there's two little boats in the harbor, let's say the San Francisco Harbor, the Boston Harbor, one little boat's going nowhere, a little sailboat bobbing up and down. Another sailboat goes by that boat at full speed. 
Imagine the other boat yelling at the boat, hey, stop stealing my wind. The other boat would say, put your sail up, dummy. There's plenty of wind in the harbor to sail more than one ship. And in the kingdom of God, on the day of Pentecost, when the church began, it wasn't just fire. It was also a rushing mighty wind. There is enough power and inertia in the kingdom of God to fulfill every vision, every dream, every hope, every life, everything in this room. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. Your company cultures, your leadership cultures. This is a very, very important conversation. Just a couple more. Here we go. Um, you know, if you think for too long about a missed opportunity, chances are you'll miss the next one too. The power of regret is enormous when we drop our heads. One of the themes of scripture is to look up because people would look down in their despair. If you think for too long, now we have to learn. How many of you in this room have ever totaled your car? Okay, you weren't totaled, but the car got totaled. So they said, come down to Frank's auto shop, come behind the chain link fence. What do you do? You go see your car. It's shot, but why are you there? To look at your car, say goodbye to your car? No, you're there to reach inside the wreckage, make certain you've pulled out the valuables, but you don't tie the wreck to your leg and drag it around with you for the rest of your life. That's good. The key to life is to be able to reach inside the wreckage pull out the wisdom and leave the wreckage behind. There you go, right there. Okay? If you think for too long about a missed opportunity, chances are you just missed the next one too. I think I got two more super fast, here we go. Do you know discovering something new is good, but rediscovering something lost is better? Virgin birth is a big story in the Bible. Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead is a bigger story than the virgin birth. Reclaiming something that was lost is one of the greatest euphoric human experiences. I'm not saying that every broken relationship can be restored, but at some point, if we want to protect the progress in our life, we have to learn the power of restoration. We have to bring things back from the dead. You can't just keep moving on. Now, you'll never run out of humans. You can delete, 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 and you're still going to have an earth full of humans to interact with. But if you want to reach your full potentiality in the Lord, you have to circle back and restore things that are lost and restore things that are broken along the way. Don't just give up on things because they're in a sorry, sad state right now. Rediscovering something lost is better than constantly establishing or birthing things that are new, friends. You gotta be able to do both, but you gotta circle back and restore. I think here's the last one, here we go. Do you know you can't force people to stop feeling something? You can only help them start to feel something new. I can't tell you to feel anything. I can only give you a powerful new experience that begins to help you to feel something new in this life. That's the power of Christianity. It's the power of what Jesus has done in my life. I can't tell you to stop thinking anything about this world and this insane political tension that we have. I can't scream at people on social media or scream at people in, their, in, in a social setting and tell them to stop feeling that way. I can only help them begin to feel something new by giving them a powerful new experience. Very important conversation for healthy organizations and healthy leaders. I think this is the last one. One more, here we go. Is there one more up there? So even if you were born for something, you still have to learn how to do it. I encourage you, 
go back, finish school, keep expanding, risking, and growing because you can't live off your prior experiences for the rest of your life. Somebody say amen. Amen. So there's, there's hundreds of those in this, in this great little book. So I encourage you, holiday season, get them for your teams and uh, be a blessing to the world around you. Let's go to this teaching now out of Mark chapter 6. I'm going to paraphrase basically verses 14 through verses 39. I'm going to take you on a quick sequence of events, and then we're gonna pray together. So here we go. So in Mark chapter six, there is again a party being uh, thrown for a governor for himself. It's King Herod, who was also the governor. Uh, the one that Jesus called a fox or a rat or a snake. And so, yes, Jesus called a government official a name. It says he called, he said, you tell Herod that fox. And it was basically calling him a skunk. Now, so Jesus did call someone a name. He called him a skunk. Happened to be the governor. I'm not giving you any new theology or, or telling you to go start calling people skunks. But I'm just telling you that Jesus called this man a fox. He threw a party for himself. And at the party was his wife, Herodias. Now Herodias was married to Herod's brother Philip. She didn't think that she was fast-tracking to fame and fortune with Philip, so she basically traded husbands and Herod liked her, so he took his brother's wife. Now I don't care what your belief structure, this is out of bounds. You can't just steal your brother's wife. The dude was still living, it was wrong at every level, it was power dynamics, Herod takes Herodias as his wife. So. There was a man named John the Baptist at that time who was friends with Herod. Herod was no believer, but he was intrigued by the authority in John the Baptist's life. So he would have private meetings with John. He's a politician who privately liked the preacher, but publicly had to refute everything the preacher said because at the end of the day, most of the time, if not all the time, politics always wins in the public space because they can't divest themselves of their thinking that their power structure is built on. So rarely do you ever see a politician divest of their public platform because with it goes their entire career and their power base. So lower your expectations of politicians divesting of what they think because logic, rationale, common ground, and sensibility has been presented to them. Let it go. So Herod publicly resisted John the Baptist, but privately he respected him, the scripture says. And so um, John the Baptist told Herod, you can't do this. You can't, you can't marry her. He didn't rebuke him publicly, he rebuked him privately. And let me tell you something, friends. You stick your nose as a preacher or a prophet in somebody's personal life, you, you're, you're walking on landmines. Because Herod's wife Herodias held a grudge like, don't you tell us what to do. Don't you tell me how to live my life. Don't you tell me what kind of God designed between husband and wife it ought to be. When you start poking your nose in that space, people will cut your head off. Watch what happens. He had him thrown in jail. John the Baptist was thrown in jail for privately telling Herod something that was true. That's how vehement and how strong that spirit is of political power, friends. Make no mistake, it's, it's alive today. And so, so John the Baptist is in jail. They're throwing a party. Herodias' daughter comes out to dance. And folks, this turns into late night at a club. 
She's dancing and it's seductive and it's very sexual and he, she seduces the king and he's been drinking so alcohol and dancers and it's all his defense mechanism. He said, hey, whatever you want, just ask me. And she says, the mother tells the daughter, have John the Baptist's head delivered on a platter. And here's where the whole story, I mean, this content would be banned from YouTube, friends. This is total ISIS. He sends someone down to John to behead him. Now I read the story like you and I go, seriously, Lord, John the Baptist is beheaded on a drunken whim from a politician? How is this possible? Where was the angel stopping the sword? How could this be? And then they delivered John's head on a platter. It's right there in the Bible. It's, it's so provocative. It's like, am I reading this? Yeah, you are. And so John's dead. He's been beheaded by a politician in a drunken whim. So the disciples of Jesus come, and I'm just gonna paraphrase this, they come to get the body of the Lord. And can you imagine the PTSD on these guys? John the Baptist is the most renowned figure in the world, next to Jesus. And if the Lord can't protect him, what shot do we have? He's 10 times more spiritual than us. Lord, if you're not there for that guy, how are you gonna be there for us? A little over two and a half years ago when COVID began to fall upon this planet without warning and assaulted the sensibilities of, this, of our humanity, people lost their lives and there was a massive terror across the planet. Christian and non-Christian were all in the same storm. For the first time in my lifetime, the entire earth was in the same storm. Terror. The cloud of death is over us. I can't escape the possibility of my own death. That's what the disciples must have been feeling when they buried John the Baptist's body and his head is not connected or was it a separate trial? It's gruesome. So the scripture says that the disciples after burying John, burying John, went back and they returned to Jesus to tell him in report, Jesus lost his second cousin because the mothers were cousins and now so they're second cousins and Jesus himself says let us go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest we got to regroup what's going on and he said that there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat says it right there so they left for a boat Jesus, feeling compassion, began to teach the large number of people. They were headed to a retreat, and it turns into an outdoor festival. So the disciples are watching Jesus teach these thousands. And finally, late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this powerful Shakespearean poetic phrase, Jesus, this is a desolate place and the day is far spent. We're in a desolate place and the day is far spent. Let's stack it up real quick. The disciples have the cloud of death hovering over them. Who can escape this? Think about America the last couple of years. And then it says, Jesus, we haven't eaten. Not only is there the cloud of death, I'm now running on empty. Millions and millions of faith-following Christians have been running on empty the last couple of years. No time to eat. 
I couldn't see my mom for a year in an Alzheimer's hospital. They finally let us after a year. We're talking to her on FaceTime. She's more confused than ever. She's not going to live long. I couldn't get to my mom. They finally let us see her across this table. And my mother wasn't allowed to touch us. We're in gowns and robes. And our siblings are across the table. And my mother's lurching for me. And I'm recoiling from my mother who's dying. So I could be a good citizen. I'll never forget that moment. We were the last people of the day. I literally was thinking, okay, you guys, here's what we're gonna do. There's a nurse right here. I'm gonna hit her as hard as I can hit her. I'm gonna knock her out. We're gonna take her behind that bush, leave her body. We're getting mom in the car. We're headed to Baskin Robbins right now to get some chocolate ice cream and then we're going to Starbucks. We're taking mom out of here. I was losing my mind. I was running on empty. Worship got suspended. Teaching was disrupted. You throw the election in that year, COVID, George Floyd, the election, 2020, unprecedented, the Bermuda Triangle of those three events. So many leaders in churches passed through those three events and we haven't heard from them since. The disciples say, hey Jesus, John has been murdered on a drunken whim by a politician. Who can escape what's coming? And he says, we're running on empty, Jesus. We haven't eaten. And we're in the middle of nowhere. We're in a desolate place and the sun is setting. We are out of time. We feel death. We're running on empty. We're in the middle of nowhere. And we're out of time. And then the disciples tell Jesus, send them away. That's been the posture of many Christians. And we're going to bring this to a close here. Posture of many Christians has said, you know what? I just can't take this series of events and the impact of global death and pandemic and viruses. I haven't eaten the way I used to eat emotionally, physically. Man, we're in the middle of nowhere, Jesus. We're in a desolate place. And the sun's going down. I'm out of time in my life. Hey, Jesus, can you send them away? And then Jesus utters the famous line, I want you to feed them. And they go, with what? Well, go collect. Not what you have, but what you have left. That's the miracle of the kingdom, friends. It's the collective of what we have left in this room, not what we have right now, where we've seen the death of empathy. I've never disliked people more in my entire life. And I'm the most optimistic, loving person I think you're ever going to meet. And I have never disliked people more in my entire life than I have in the last couple of years. I feel like empathy, <laughs> right? Something's been lost. There's a desolation. There's the setting of the sun. And in my human equation, send them away, Lord. And Jesus, you're telling me to feed them? With what, Lord? We don't got anything left. He said, you might just have a, some fumes of the Great Commission left inside of you right now. A little bit of compassion left. Put it all together and let's see what I do. And the Lord then tells them, put them on the green grass. If you read Mark 6, it's unbelievable. Green grass? 
Where do you find green grass, Lord? I love those golf courses in Dubai where the whole thing is desolate and brown and there's this brilliant green golf course. In Mark 6, it says, you feed them, put them in groups on green grass. So Life Church, as we've come through this season where we scream enough already, Lord, enough already. Death, everybody running on empty. We're in the middle of nowhere as a country and the sun's going down. Lord, send them away. He says, no, 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 the Great Commission is still full tilt. The church doesn't get a free pass right now on the Great Commission. You need to feed the people. Lord, how do we do that? Gather together the collective what's left life church. Let the Lord bless it, not just give thanks for it, but bless it. And then watch it multiply. And the very last line of this text is they all, all ate, all, everybody ate. And we're satisfied. I believe the Lord is going to take us from the death of John the Baptist, where it feels like the politician has all the power in America right now where people on a drunken whim can just destroy whatever they want to destroy. Running without food, we don't have the emotional, physical food we need. Middle of nowhere, sun going down, that the Lord wants to breathe satisfaction. Satisfaction on his people. So Life Church, we still have to feed our neighbor. Even though all these things have happened and made us feel this way. The Lord has a miracle of satisfaction for you as you distribute the kingdom to this city and beyond this world in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together across this building today. I'm glad you came to the house of the Lord today. Lord is good. I want to pray for you, and then one of the staff is going to come. Um, if this was a word for you, like a prophetic word for you. Like, man, that's how I feel. Death, emptiness, desolation, the setting of the sun, those are all my emotions. And I have no desire to help people anymore or just flickering. Send them away, Lord. That's kind of how I feel right now. President Hagen, that's kind of what I'm going through. If that's you, as I pray, if you're comfortable in putting a hand out or at least put your heart up to heaven, would you just receive this on a personal level? Jesus, we pray for a fresh visitation. Lord, help me not to lose my first love. Keep my heart hot, not lukewarm, Jesus. Lord, I've never been so upset at my neighbor, and yet I have to help him. I don't know how, Lord. I just want you to send him away and for us to regroup ourselves and not be obligated to lost people. But Lord, that is not what the disciples were allowed, nor is Life Church being given that option. We praise you today, Jesus, and we thank you today, Jesus. Fill this church with fresh wind, power, and fire, God. I pray you would send revival in a way that would surprise us all. Bless this great church. Bless the Hennessy. Bless the leaders, the staff, knit us together and bring a new satisfaction from heaven into our hearts and into our great city. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said amen, amen. Thank you so much for allowing me to come and share. Hope I get to come back again and teach. 
Thanks for joining us this week. Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast, Chew on That. The Chew on That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week. Thank you.